Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. I, uh, it was during the summer when they were late on staff and they asked me if I could cover off a suspicious death on the Upper East Side. And so I went, got the name from the doorman, and I said, oh, you know, so what's he like? And the doorman said, I don't know, he hasn't left his apartment in 15 years. And uh, I said, oh, really? What, did he get somebody to uh, bring in his groceries and things he needed? No, 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 he would order out. Oh, yeah, where did he order from? Oh, the diner down the street. Oh, yeah, where else did he order from? Just the diner down the street. So, being the intrepid reporter I am, I go to the diner down the street. And I ask, what did the guy order? Well, he ordered eggs over easy, sausages, uh, rice pudding, and a chocolate milkshake. And I said, oh, yeah, what else did he order? No, that's what he ordered three times a day for 15 years. So on the front page of uh, the New York Post was mystery of sausage and eggs hermit. (laughs) As weird as this sounds, it's actually a pretty typical New York Post story. Brad Hunter started at the famous tabloid in 1998. My first story was uh, Daryl Strawberry, a baseball player getting cancer. And the headlines were always his favorite. Cancer threw Daryl Strawberry a curveball yesterday, but fans across the city stepped up to the plate to support and pray for the ailing Yankee slugger. If not exactly politically correct. Headless body in topless bar. That that sort of thing. And uh, But for Brad, that was all part of the appeal. I grew up in Belleville, and my dad used to uh, pick up the New York Post and New York Daily News, right? So that's how I learned how to write as well, you know, very truncated, sharp, and uh, as often as possible, funny. It's the funniest newspaper that's ever been been written. I mean, I... uh, But funny wasn't always possible. In fact, a few months after Brad wrote that story about the sausage and egg guy, funny would start feeling like a thing of the past. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhart. I was in the CBC newsroom in Toronto on September 11th, and I remember a few people breaking down. They just couldn't handle the enormity of what was happening. But most of us dug in, working hours and hours of overtime to try and make sense of what had happened. It was a career-defining day for a lot of reporters. But for some, like Brad Hunter, that day would do more than define his career. It would define the rest of his life. Today, Brad's a national crime columnist at the Toronto Sun, but in 2001, he was still with the New York Post. The Post can be brash and controversial, but for Brad, tabloid journalism has always been about putting real people at the center of a story. And after the towers came down, that's exactly what he set out to do. 
I lived in Astoria across the East River uh, in Queens uh, from the office and my landlady came running up the stairs and told me that a plane had hit the World Trade Center and like a lot of people I thought at first that it was probably some uh, some dummy in a Piper Cherokee or something like that. Then she came up and told me another one had hit and I was certain I knew it was uh, terrorism. I uh, pulled myself together and I had to make a command decision. I wasn't sure whether I was going to go into the office or whether I was going to go down to ground zero. Now, the owner of the post, of course, is Rupert Murdoch, and he's an inveterate old newspaper man. And uh, I knew Murdoch would want the presses running as soon as possible. And so I went into the office. But the, the startling thing about that, I was on the last train into Manhattan. I was on the end train, which is an elevated subway. And as it went through Astoria and then Long Island City, people looked absolutely stunned. And they were looking out the window, all leaning to one side of the subway, because out that window on the elevated train, you could see the World Trade Centers burning. Nobody was looking at anything except the burning World Trade Center. You did get to the office that day, that morning. What was it like in the newsroom? Uh, it was uh, fairly frantic. There weren't a lot of people in there because a lot of the staff had to come in from Westchester County, New Jersey, Connecticut sort of thing. And so the trains were already stopping and no longer running. But they were pretty happy to see me. I'd worked uh, like a, a dog for two and a half years in Timmins, which was typically 10 to 15 stories a day. So I got extremely fast. And so that was one of the reasons they were delighted to see me and just said, okay, start taking calls and start putting together a main. And that's what I did. And then it was just a blur. We got sandwiches from the Carnegie Deli, tons of coffee. There's no smoking newsroom, but given the circumstances, a copy kid was sent out to a dollar store to get ashtrays and a couple cartons of cigarettes for everybody because a lot of people started smoking again that day. Did you leave the newsroom at all that day? No. You know, I was dealing with a lot of reporters that were out in the field and editors who were out in the field who couldn't get in, but I was writing the overall picture. But at the same time, I didn't have a clue what was going on. You know, the facts, the circumstances, the death tally, things like that were changing every couple minutes. It was very difficult to keep up with it and keep focused. For me, the memory that I viscerally felt was when that first tower fell. Because right. it was just like... It was one thing to see the burning at the top and you're sort of thinking, oh, there's probably people there. And But when that thing fell, it felt like the world might be coming to an end. And I right. remember looking out the window and seeing the CN Tower and thinking, could that be next? You know, the Indian Point Nuclear Facility uh, was just up the river from New York. Are they going to take a crack at that? When that first tower fell, what happened in your newsroom? We were completely stunned. There was elements to it that it was just completely otherworldly, that you're not connecting, that there's people in there, that there's people down below. I mean, a couple of our photographers were buried in rubble, but I mean, they're both fine, but like that's, that's how intense it was, but it was... Uh, Could you hear the street? Sirens, just nothing but sirens. And I didn't actually leave the uh, newsroom till I think maybe 11.15 uh, that night. And this was just off Times Square. 
and you could hear a pin drop. There was nobody in sight. There was no cabs. There was nothing, just absolutely stillness and nothingness and silence, and it would strike you as uh, a city at war. Now, the only uh, interesting you know, thing about coming out of the office that day was our star columnist, Steve Dunleavy. He was standing on the street, West 47th, with three cases of beer and a bunch of cops and priests sitting drinking in the middle of uh, the street. And I, of course, was uh, inclined to join them. And it was difficult for anybody, I think, to make sense of it all. Like the predictions of the loss were far greater than they actually were, but the loss hadn't been absorbed by by some of these people. The cops knew, but, you know, they still didn't know the extent of their losses. Did you, how much did you understand what had actually happened by the end of the day? I think by the end of the day, I was starting to get a grip on it. I mean, actually, when I got home, I, I started, you know, watching uh, cable news just to, uh, just to try to piece it all together. I, you know, I had a good idea who did it. I had a good idea why they did it. There was a lot of anger too, because, you know, I was very much, you know, it'd been the culmination of a lifelong dream to work uh, in New York and for the post. And even by, by nightfall, you could see that starting to get chipped away. On the 11th, as has been widely known and reported, the, the weather was one of those glorious fall days that makes you so glad to be alive. It was sunny, it was warm, but without humidity. And at the time, New York was on, you know, a bit of a high. Everything was going great. Everything was going great for me personally. Now, the next day, the 12th, that was a different matter. And uh, I'd been sent to write a feature on the people who had friends and loved ones who were missing from the WTC. I had been sent down to the Lexington Avenue Armory with uh, photographer Rick Dembow. And back in the day, a big part of the business was doing pickups for tragedies, car crashes, murders, anything like that. Pickups are when a reporter goes out and tries to get a picture of someone who's just died or been involved in a big newsworthy event. The hardest ones are when you have to ask parents for pictures of their dead children. I've done it too, and it's a terrible part of this job. Because you're invading someone's grief. You know, I've struggled with that over the years. I've gone from being a champion at being able to do it to uh, being frozen for hours in front of someone's house. But on this day, there were people there from all over the world, thousands of them, and they were begging to give us the pictures. And they were putting up posters, missing posters all over the place. And part of the thing that was so heartbreaking about that was that so many of the pictures were just pedestrian things. Dad holding and his son, small son holding up his first fish and that little league games and, you know, weddings and engagement parties and all the various and sundry things we often associate with living a life. They were all there 
on full display in the weeping, weeping rain. I was there for about two and a half hours, and it was essentially a career's worth of doing pickups in two hours of just dealing with terrified, frightened, heartbroken people, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And, you know, it became so overwhelming that I said to Rick, okay, I've got lots for this story. And we walked over to Third Avenue and uh, pulled into an Irish bar there. And there was nobody there except one woman who was having a, a whiskey. And it turned out it was a very good friend of mine. And her and I sat at the table and cried and knocked back about three Jamesons. And we looked across the street and there was an Afghan restaurant. And, you know, he'd already put up a sign, I'm a proud American. God bless uh, America sort of thing. And so we'd made a determination that we would go there for dinner some point when it was over. And we did. And then came the funerals. The Post was determined to cover as many as possible. They turned to Brad for a lot of them. Uh, I think as many Jewish people as possible, uh, you know, buried their loved ones as soon as they could. And then a lot of cops and firefighters, but we had to determine with a limited staff and whatnot, and so many funerals, sometimes, you know, 10, 20 a day, if not more, determining what funeral you're going to go to, what story you're going to focus on, and you're looking for that little bit extra. Do you have any idea how many the Post covered? How many you covered? I probably covered 30 to 50, and the Post covered hundreds. What was the hardest thing to do in those first few weeks? Well... You didn't know what to say to people. You didn't know how they'd been affected or if they'd been affected. There was a, a, a pall of sadness that uh, had fallen over this extraordinarily exciting, energetic city. And I, you know, to this day, I don't see that the city has its bounce back. It's just a permanent hole in the city's heart. And that... I don't know what amount of money or anything could change that because, you know, unlike the very popular myth that people from New York are hard as nails, they're not. Now, I lived in the outer boroughs. I wasn't in the glamour spot of Manhattan, but these were the places where the cops live, where the firefighters live, where the EMTs live, where mid-management or whatever at some of the companies at the World Trade Center reside in. And there was a lot more pain there than there was in Manhattan, even though the hole in the ground was in Manhattan. And those deaths were acutely felt in those neighborhoods. And going and sitting with them and spending time at funerals, as, as I said, just utterly, utterly heartbreaking, the amount of pummeling my soul took from doing that. Certainly, I didn't lose anybody or anything like that, uh, but, you know, you're taking on a lot of people's pain. 
And it's sometimes you blow things off a little bit, but you were in rapt attention for what you were hearing because I, I felt it my duty as a professional and as a human being that I had to tell these people's stories. And that included the cop from Queens and the firefighter from Brooklyn and things like that. And I think that's sort of an area, areas that are often forgotten by uh, mainstream media anymore because, you know, journalism itself has become a bit of a rich kid's profession. Journalists don't know how to talk to those people anymore because often they're from a much higher station. And unless they're doing a, a zoological experiment to, oh, let's see how cops and firefighters live, they're not really interested in them. That's where the tabloids come in, right? I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Why did you work for the New York Post? I thought that in... A lot of ways they give a truer, uh, now I'm talking city tabloids. I'm not talking like the National Enquirer or National Examiner or whatever like that. They give a, a more accurate reflection of life for the way the greater number of people go through their lives. Now, a broadsheet newspaper would go to the institution, whereas a tabloid newspaper would go to the people. Uh, you know, if you're doing a story on homelessness, the broadsheet paper would go and talk to advocates, bureaucrats, and the government, whereas a tabloid newspaper would go talk to homeless people. I think that's one of the problems of modern media is, is that too many people have lost the common touch. Brad worked a month straight before he got a day off. And did you find that when you got back and you started writing again that the tone of your coverage changed? You know, I always put uh, accuracy at a premium, but I became a lot more careful because the personal stories that we were doing in connection to this horrific event demanded. We weren't misquoting some third-string bureaucrat. It was, you know, people's lives. And those facts had to be right. I became significantly more careful. I became much more empathetic. I became a better listener. And uh, that was my life for you know most of four months, but then off and on again for another year. Things would come up, various things. There would be the invasion of Iraq. There would be the fighting in Afghanistan. There would be, you know, the guy named Johnny Spann, who was from... Uh, Alabama, who was the first American killed in Afghanistan. So, you know, he was on the front page. How about you? Like, that's a lot to take on. We know more about the way PTSD and the, the, this kind of coverage affects us, even though you were in the newsroom, but you, this was your city, these were your people. I mean, it's a while now, but what did it do to you? It uh, made me significantly more cynical. It made me much harder. I used to cry all the time, and uh, I find it very difficult to cry now. And I think that's a bit of a personal tragedy in that I'm just not... I'm just not there anymore, uh, emotional or as emotional. What I was told was that I had PTSD by proxy because, you know, if you go to all these funerals, if you are dealing with this and then you know eventually this morphs 
all these civilian casualties in New York and Washington and the field in Pennsylvania, and this morphs into combat casualties coming home in body bags from Afghanistan and Iraq and whatnot, and people without legs, and how the turmoil in some people's lives, it shattered their lives, and they were pulling it back together is very, very difficult. It'd be like sitting in a room with 10 of your uh, closest colleagues and eight of them aren't anymore, like for a a fire station. It's been a, a real challenge. I mean, I still have loving relationships. I'm very close to my family, but just, uh, I can't be tweaked to, to cry anymore or, I blow off terrible things too easily. Now, I'm not cavalier about them, but they don't bother me the way they used to. Why did you leave New York City? Well, we left uh, several years after uh, 9-11. Part of the reason was that our daughter had been born in New York on the 4th of July, as it were, at St. Vincent's Hospital. And... Having a child in New York is uh, not for the faint of heart. So the decision was made. I was offered a a job back here. So uh, we made the decision to come back. Now it's broken my heart pretty much every single day. But I think in the broader picture, uh, you can say it was a good decision. And we felt much safer the minute we got home. And as you say, nobody knew whether the world was completely ending. It's cliche to say that 9-11 changed everything, but it did. I believed that on September 11th, 2001, the the United States had a nervous breakdown from which it has yet to recover. You know, scared and angry. It's actually odd, and the further away you get from New York and Washington and the field in Pennsylvania, the angrier people are. I mean, you know, it was very disturbing. Not the country I knew uh, at all. Crime Byline is produced and mixed by Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. The executive producers at Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antiga. Special thanks to Adrian Batra, the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun, and Aaron Valwa, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media. 